Welcome to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. I'm Trevor Maxwell. I'm a stage four colon cancer survivor, and I've got a message for other men. You don't have to go through this alone. What does it mean to man up to cancer? It means reaching out instead of isolating. It means having the courage to accept help along the way. To me, manning up isn't just about being tough. It's about knowing that we're stronger and smarter as a pack than we are as lone wolves. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. I am psyched about my guest today. Chef Kevin Gillespie is with us from Georgia. I want to say hi to Kellen. How are you? I'm good. We are here at our secret underground lab in an undisclosed location. I think you've disclosed it numerous times, so I don't think it's a... <laughs> I may have disclosed it. All right. We're in our family room in Cape Elizabeth. Beautiful Cape and historic Cape Elizabeth, Maine. So I'm just pumped to have Kevin on the show. So Kevin Gillespie is an acclaimed chef, restaurant owner, and businessman who became a breakout star on Bravo's award-winning television series, Top Chef. My kids and my wife and I are huge fans. Kevin is the founder and owner of Redbeard Restaurants, including the restaurants Gun Show, Cold Beer... That's a name we can celebrate. Oh, Kellen. yeah, I love it. Uh, and Revival in his home state of Georgia. He has the greatest titles ever for his cookbooks, including Fire in My Belly and Pure Pork Awesomeness. True, Kevin? That's true. Yeah, <laughs> true stuff. <laughs> um, so you're a vegetarian. <laughs> yeah, I like to joke anytime I, I'm like leading in on that book. I'm like, this is my vegan book. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I would list all of Kevin's accolades, but we wouldn't have any time left to talk. Importantly for this show... Kevin is a survivor of a rare form of renal cancer, for which he is now missing a kidney, which we'll get into later. Kevin, we're so glad to have you on the Man Up to Cancer podcast. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. So how is you? how are you now? How's Kevin now? What's your health these days? It's very good, realistically. So every time I go, and you understand this, so... You know, there, when people talk about cancer-free, what they really mean is this period of life where you don't have it, but you're scared that it's going to happen again, and your doctors aren't helping you because they need you to come back to the doctor's office every three months. And so every time you have like one of those anniversaries of a, of a test coming up, you get really scared. But thankfully, all of my results have been very good. I would say that there are some pretty drastic differences. At least I feel very different post-cancer mm. than pre-cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely some lasting effects that we can talk about more that, but from a health standpoint, my doctors would say, no, you're, you're doing very, you're doing very well. So I want to jump right into your cancer, but I do need to explain a little bit on how it is that Kevin Gillespie is appearing on this show. So my, as I mentioned, our family has been, you know, top chef fans. We're binging on past seasons and we get to this episode, this particular episode where Kevin, his team loses this major challenge. And for anyone who knows about top chef, when teams lose a challenge, generally that's when the chefs start throwing each other right under the bus, right? It gets <laughs> yes, immediately. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm deflecting, I'm blaming who who else did something worse than I did that they can go home. But on this episode, Kevin's like, no, personal responsibility. I'm stepping up. It wasn't good enough. The buck stops here. And I turn to my wife and daughters, and I'm like holy crap, did that just happen on Top Chef? <laughs> and, and I was like, wow, that's amazing. And then we find out that you are a fellow cancer survivor. And I was like, I got to reach out to this guy. So kudos to you. I mean, was there someone Thank in your you. life that taught you to be a stand-up guy uh, early on? I, I mean, I, I think it comes from a lot of different layers. Like certainly that was ingrained in me from childhood. Yeah. My family is a military family. My father and grandfather and all of my uncles, everyone like served in the military. So they're very personal responsibility, accountability. You never like throw your, your fellow, you know, um, soldiers, you know, under the bus as it were. And so I think I was taught like you own your mistakes and you take it on the chin, but it was amplified, frankly, by the whole living through cancer because the, just the reality of it. And it sounds so cliche, but people say it all the time because it's true is that once you go through this, you actually understand the difference between real crisis and things that, aren't really a big deal at all. Nailed it. And getting kicked off of Top Chef falls in the not a real big deal category. <laughs> so um, not, it's not a real crisis. Oh, man, absolutely. So let's jump in and talk about your diagnosis then. So you're, yeah. you were experiencing a, a separate medical issue that ultimately led to your diagnosis. Is that right? Yeah, this is super weird. So I had a pre-existing old football injury that when I was a teenager, when I was 18, they said, don't 
deal with it now. It was in my back. I had like a herniated disc basically in my back that they didn't want to operate on then because this was 20-something years ago. Mm. And they said, you know, oh, you know, this technology improves every single day. If you could just wait it out until you're in your mid-30s, it'll probably be a lot easier. And it actually was a lot easier to deal with it. So they went in in my mid-30s when I was 36 years old and took out this thing that had been there for years and years. And when they came, when I came back, I guess maybe six weeks after the surgery to do the the post-op, they take another round of images just to see, like mostly I think it's like, so they can all high five each other and yeah. be like, look at the good job we did. <laughs> um, and when they did it, the surgeon saw something that he thought was really weird. And so he called me and said, I, you know, I, I, I don't, this is not my area of expertise medicine wise, but there's something on your kidney in at least in the image. And that doesn't look right. That's not how they're supposed to look. I have a friend from medical school who is a urologist. Like, could I connect you with mm. him? And I said, yeah, sure. And so they connected me with these folks and they went in and they did a series of tests and they said, yeah, you have, you have something called a Bosniak cyst and they're graded and sometimes they're nothing. Like they can just be fatty tissue or water and not mean anything. And other times they're really serious and, and we can't biopsy it and we don't really have any way of telling. Um, <laughs> So we're going to give it six months and we're going to re-examine it and then we can grade it against the previous picture and we can tell whether or not it's changing. Oh, that's super that's, reassuring. That's, yeah, right, exactly. And they're like, that's really our only way Especially to deal with it. Especially with a six-month differential of timeline. Right. Like, that's I know. a long yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, trust me. So I'm like, this is, this is not good. So this was like right at Christmas, basically. And um, I said, okay, well, all right. This, I guess like if that's the way we deal with it. And they're like, yeah, I wouldn't be worried about it. Right now it looks pretty pretty, you know, uninteresting. So my wife and I just go about living our lives and we basically put it out of our mind entirely. And we go on vacation and we happen to be in New Zealand on vacation that year. And we had, we were there for almost a month mm. and about halfway through the trip, we were literally driving one day. And I was like, I can't tell if I have to go to the bathroom or if I need to go to the hospital, mm. like, but something is not right. Mm. Oh no. And my kidneys hurt. I'm like, maybe I'm dehydrated. Like, so, you know, we kind of went through all the, like, what could it possibly be scenarios? And I eventually called my doctor and said, I, this is weird. Like, it just doesn't make sense. And he said, if the pain continues, like for the next couple hours, like go to the emergency room. Yep. Well, you know, as it always works out, the second you talk to your doctor, everything goes away. So <laughs> I got off the phone yeah. and it was like, oh, nope, went away. And so his you know, other sort of piece of information was either way come into my office when you, as soon as you get back to the United States. Yeah. And so another week goes by and I go into his office when I get back. Um, and I go in and I go for a round of testing and imaging. And this is like eight o'clock in the morning. And I leave his office to go get in my car. And on my way out, they're like, you know, we'll have the images in a couple of days. We'll call you back once we know something. I didn't get to my car before he called and said, you need to call your wife and you need to come back to the office. Ooh. And I'm like, okay, that's never a good answer. And so yeah, called my wife and said, you know, meet me down here at the doctor's office. And so she came and we went in and he goes, okay, so you know how we were going to wait and see? And I'm like, yeah, you know, technically we were supposed to wait till June. And he's like, you have 10 days. He was like, it's, it has grown immensely. It oh, went from being about the size of like, you know, the end of my finger to being about the size of my hand wow. Um, wow. in three months, give or take. And he was like, the way these things work is that if we can get it out of you before it ruptures, <laughs> you'll probably be okay. He was like, but when they rupture, they're like a, they're like a stick of dynamite going off. They just will now like your kidneys will now pump all of this infected tissue oh my God. through your whole body. And <clears throat> their survivability rate after it ruptures is less than 1%. And so he, I was like, I don't, I, and so I was so blown away and I kept being like, Oh, I'm, I'm busy. I have, I have like an event I have to do. And he's like, dude, I don't care what you have to do. He's like 10 days. I'll give you 10 days to get your affairs in order. And then we have to operate. And so that's what happened. Clearly he wasn't expecting that kind of explosive growth with that Bosniak cyst if he was telling you, like, check back in six months. Right. No, not at all. They said that normally, for one, he said he's never taken one out of a person my age. He said, we take them out of men who are in their late 70s. And he said, <laughs> in fact, if men 
all lived to be 100 years old, they would probably all have to have at least some sort of intervention surgery to remove one of these because they're very common in men over the age of 75. That's when they start becoming an issue. So you need to stop being exceptional is, is what's going on here. <laughs> at, at, I know. At, at I'm, like, this is just one, I'm like, this is just one more check on the like list of ways that Kevin Gillespie <laughs> is way too old for his actual <laughs> body that he's in. Like, I started my using the hashtag young curmudgeon following that because I'm like, I'm clearly an old man that is like <laughs> in like, I, I, I like to think that my body is like an Italian sports car in that when it was at its prime, it was phenomenal, <laughs> but they're not known for their longevity. And <laughs> they, this thing they sprint is really like, well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This thing is like held together by hopes and dreams at this point. So, but that, yeah. so, so your sports car comes to a screeching halt after this big, you know, right. when, when this news hits and you had right. so much going yeah. on with your business and restaurants I, and everything else. It was crazy. And so I was like, I don't know what to do. So first of all, I left there saying, well, I would like a second opinion, but I have 10 days. How in the yeah, world do you get, get a second, second opinion, opinion in 10 days? In 10, right. 10 days. So I kind of like, I mean, we went with like the Hail Mary approach here, which is I called my publicist actually before I called anybody and said, here's what's happening. We need to make a press release because the only way I will get a second opinion is if the doctors come to me, not the other way Great around. Great call. And so we made a big press release and people came out of the woodwork across the country to send me your information. I'll look at it myself. Like I had doctors from Sloan Kettering. I had people oh, from MD wow. Anderson fly to Atlanta to like do another round of tests within, within a day. That's amazing. And so I, I don't know where all these people came from, but somehow in 10 days we assembled kind of this dream team with the surgeon was based in Atlanta because he is considered the best robotic surgeon in the Southeast. And then we had um, an oncologist from New York and we had some other folks from around the country and they all kind of came together and oversaw this thing happen uh, at a moment's notice. And so the positive side is that I did not have enough time to get scared because I was so swamped with trying to like, hey, everybody who works for me, <laughs> guess who's not going to be at work for a while? <laughs> like, um, yeah. And... The diagnosis, I don't really think, set in until I was actually, like, on the gurney, all the IVs hooked up, like, in that cold, cold, like, pre-op room. Right. And, and then you're like, oh, my God, wait, what's about to happen? And the fact that because they didn't have very much time, they also didn't have a fully baked surgical plan. Right. Um, they went into it with a, we will make a decision once you're open. We will cut you open and then we will decide. Well, yeah. So it's interesting you say that. Same thing with my surgeries for my livers. My, my surgeon always told me, you know, what we see on the scans is always different from what we see when we go in and see that internal terrain of what's actually there. But you had this dream team, but I imagine that's the longest 10 days of you and your wife's lives when you're thinking you got this stick of dynamite inside you. Like, is this thing going to rupture? Yeah. Right. It was. It was really challenging. And it was, we, my wife will tell you that like she cried a lot in private and never in front of me because she was really committed to not, as she put it, like she knew that if she broke down, I would break down because I was trying to support her. Right. And so she stayed really, really strong through this. And I think because my wife and I have always been a very good team, we, we just tackled this like any other crisis we've dealt with in our life. And that we was, create a plan, like who's going to do what I'm doing this, you're doing that. Let's check the boxes. And so we managed somehow to turn this 10 days into 10 very, very busy days, but 10 days that we didn't spend a lot of it commiserating. Um, I think that came after the fact because my surgical post-op didn't go well. And so my journey got much worse on the back end than it was on the front end. On the front end, I felt completely fine the day I went to the hospital. Right. It was leaving the hospital that things didn't go, well, not even leaving, in the hospital that things started to go very badly. So the surgery itself was a success. Yes. Yeah, the surgery was a success. The complications started for me post-op because we learned in the hospital that I apparently have a morphine allergy and didn't know that. Oh, um, and they were having to use pure morphine because when you go back and you look at the calendar, you remember that this is right after the hurricane hit Puerto Rico. And so almost all of the IV pain medication was sent to, was sent to Puerto Rico. Mm. So all they were literally using like old school world war one morphine to like, <laughs> you know, deaden the pain. And every time the auto drip kicked in, 
I lost consciousness. And so I was being, and thank God, I really don't have very much memory of this, but I was being revived like left and right in the hospital, like because until they figured out like what was going on. And then we switched because there wasn't anything in the middle. Then we switched to Tylenol for dealing with Mm. post-op pain. Yeah, my husband, after his surgery, was on IV Tylenol and that was it. It's actually amazing how powerful that actually can be i didn't know i didn't know iv tylenol is actually so solid at its pain management yeah right Uh, Right. i was calling for the iv tylenol and then like the iv ativan was really nice probably not the healthiest thing at that time but man it was good yeah i was calling for the like please let me out of this hospital like i will deal with the pain on my own terms like i've got to get out of here like um and it was, oh man, it was just agony, uh, as you can imagine. How long were you in the hospital during the recovery process? I guess about a week, give or take, yeah. you know, um, when I was supposed to be there overnight oh, because wow. this was like a, like a minimally invasive robotic surgery. So it was theoretically like, oh, I'd stay overnight and the next morning I would leave. Like, that's not the way that played out. And what was your post-op care plan and what they say about recurrence and treatment after operation, that stuff, like what was the follow-up? So I guess I got off a little bit lighter than most because I didn't have to do chemo or radiation. Yep. I had to take a, and I, I looked all morning trying to figure out the name of this. I had to take like an, a medicine. Like I had to take, it was a new, it was a test basically. We have the Winship Cancer Fellowship here in Atlanta, yeah. which is like an MD Anderson. Very, and so they said, look, we have this new sort of, you know, you take one pill a day, like a vitamin kind of thing. And you're a perfect candidate for this. We'd like to to use that. And so I did that, which... The downside to it are like, you know, when people ask, like, what was it like compared to radiation? I, I don't really yeah. know. What I know is that this medicine is like an ultra sedative. And um, so when you take it, you just sleep. And so realistically, I was asleep 20 hours a day for probably three months. Wow. Like, and I have almost no memory of it. It's for the best, Kevin. My wife, it, well, that's what my wife will tell you because I guess it wasn't good. So even though I was asleep, I was kind of in a half asleep state. Like I don't remember it, but she said agonizing levels of pain. Um, my surgical sites got infected because I don't know, probably I did something wrong. I don't know. But you really like, do put a lot of bad. blame on yourself from the beginning of the second. <laughs> Well, I think actually what happened, as bad as this sounds, is that my dogs were like really worried about me and they wanted to like come level me. And so I think one of them hopped up in the bed mm. and like landed on my abdomen oh, and like yeah. like burst one of my like the the surgical sites open and then it didn't set back right the right way. So anyhow, I had a pretty rough go of it for about three months and then three more months after I stopped with that medicine it was just dealing with like post-op related issues and energy issues, you know, like, because when it was all said and done, I lost, I now am missing my kidney, my gallbladder, my common bile duct, an adrenal gland, (laughs) like, uh, some, some part of my small intestine, some part of my large intestine. So I ended up with the surgical margin being like, we're taking out all of this right here. So, and of course it was as luck would have, it was my right kidney, which is, I didn't know this going into it. I didn't realize it was like much more complicated in its plumbing than the left kidney, that the left kidney is like a, a backup kidney basically. And so when they take your right out, they have to completely rewire your left kidney. It's like in my, this is, this dates me right here, but I'm like, so like how, when you swap a VCR and a DVD player and they're like, <laughs> yeah, sort of. <laughs> so, so yeah, like all the cords had to be redone. So you're in your mid thirties, top of your game. Yeah for your career and everything's going great. This comes along and obviously there's the physical challenges. There's the meds challenges, the recovery. I mean, let's, so let's just get into the emotional mental health side of life. What was it like for you when that happened? It was brutal. That I think hands down was the hardest part. It, um, I have never been a person who I've, I am incredibly competitive and I've spent most of my life, fighting extremely hard to win at things and then frankly more often than not winning um and so when you are in a position where you can't like you you can't affect it the first thing that like popped in my head as selfish as this is was to be like 
what did I do to deserve? Like, sure. you know, that's not right. That's not how this works. <laughs> like, you know, like, uh, and offended almost at the notion that I was going to have to go through this. Um, I was really, really angry at first, I think. And I was really angry post-surgery because I was in so much pain. And so that level of chronic pain, like, instantly just changes your demeanor as a person. You know, it makes you so bitter and frustrated. Oh, for sure. And, um, and then blend that with the fact that the recurrence rate thing was basically what I was told was if we don't see anything at all within a year, the recurrence rate is very low. Mm -hmm. And if we don't see anything in five years, it's basically mm -hmm. non-existent. Mm -hmm. But if we see something, then it's, then it's really, really bad. Basically it was like, if we see anything else, like then we're in really really bad spot. Yeah. Wrap your brain around that one. Right. So you live with this like looming fear of like this monster in the closet that you're like, is he there? Is he not there? Like, I, I don't know. Yep. And it was amplified by the fact that my very first post-op when they shot photos of everything, they saw on my left kidney, something else. Oh, and I was like, here we go again. <laughs> and of course this, it, the conversation was the exact same we're going to watch this. Yep. Like we're going to have to, and I'm like, why? So we can watch it do the same thing it did last time. Like you can't take this one. If that's the plan, like we have to come up with a new plan. I have to get a transplant. Like I, I'm not a doctor, but I have been told that you can't live with zero kidneys. Um, and so, you know, you have that looming behind and that just amplifies that like bitterness and frustration. And then the fact that you're alone for most of your treatment and most of your recovery, you know, I think that part probably doesn't get talked about enough, um, is that you spend a lot of that time alone. And this is coming from someone, by the way, who enjoys being alone, like very, very much is a loner kind of needs space in life person. Sure. But it's a lot. There's a difference between having like some space and clarity when you want it and feeling like you're just stuck in bed and that the world has somewhat forgotten about you maybe. And that people were all very, very concerned at first and then people's lives keep going on. And so the, you know, the, the letters of support and the things like that, they stop showing up and that's it. That's when it sets in and gets really hard. Yeah, absolutely. So the whole man up to cancer concept is that I'm encouraging men to avoid isolation during the journey. And I want guys to know that reaching out and accepting help when you need it is not a sign of weakness that it's actually right. a sign of strength. Was that, did you feel that you had to face cancer in a lot of ways on your own? How comfortable were you uh, leaning on others and, and and how much of it, and did you face that isolation issue yourself? Well, I went through phases. Yeah, I started thinking this was my journey and I have to do this. Like once I got over the angry part, you know, which that like during that phase, like I, I didn't care who was there. And, and, and I, and that's a shame because I had a lot of friends come visit during that phase of my sort of mental health stage. And, and I didn't care. Yep. I was just so mad, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and I hate that. And I, I, frankly, that's one of, I'm not a man with many regrets in his life, but I regret not really taking in and being present in those moments more than I was. Sure. But once that phase passed, I felt like this was some sort of, you know, journey that had to be shouldered the burden of it by me and only me. And I had to carry that weight and it's too much to carry by yourself, Oof. to be honest with you. Yes. And it just crushes you. And I was very fortunate that maybe because of my, my public presence, people knew how to get in touch with me. They knew how at least to like somewhat get in touch with me. And so <laughs> I got, such a tremendous amount of letters and emails and text messages and, and everything sent to me of with encouragement that it made an enormous difference. And this is a weird, really sort of a funny analogy, but the oceans movies, like the ocean 11, 12, 13, that kind of thing <laughs> yeah. sure, sure. in oceans 13, like one of the characters, you know, is like in bed, like he's laid up in bed while they're doing this. And then one day he like picks up that letter and reads it. And then all of a sudden he reads all of them. And then he kind of like comes out of his funk. That's very much what happened to me. I was in a funk and I finally got a message that for whatever reason resonated. Mm. And I think because it was, I, I think because this person 
wasn't going to make it. And they, they haven't, they've, they have since passed yeah. away. Yeah. Um, and their capacity to put all of this into like perspective and recognize, um, what it was and recognize, frankly, like the beauty in the suffering that there was an opportunity to come from it, that, that you just had to, you had to be able to see the opportunity and the fact that they were willing to carry some of my burden for me because they knew that they knew that their, that their life was going to be over sooner than later. Um, it just completely changed me. Like I, I snapped out of this like self pity thing that I was in and I realized that I had to get better and I had to get better f as fast as I could safely because I had an obligation now to everyone else who was going through this to help share that story that this person shared with me, um, that, that she had sort of mm. passed the torch to me and now it was my turn to like talk to people and, and, tell them what basically what you guys are doing. That's, and that's why I'm here today is that this is just more of that work of trying to help people understand that it is okay to go through all of those phases and it is okay to be angry and frustrated and sad. And it's to be manic some days. And it's all of those things are perfectly fine. And the journey is something that will be a little different for each person. Right. There isn't a playbook that just <laughs> works for everybody, but that the cornerstone piece of it that is true for everyone is that, the journey is easier if you'll let the people who want to, to take it with you come along with you. Like if you'll let them help you carry the load, it'll be a lot better. That's exactly what you're doing. Beautifully, beautifully said. And every word that you just said resonates deeply with me, especially that part about now that you know how dark it can get, you truly appreciate the light. Yeah. And going through the, the anger phase, the, the pity phase, all, all that stuff, it's like, it's necessary. Like, you have to process it. You have to go through those stages before you can get to that point where you're ready to hear from that woman who reached out to you. You wouldn't have been ready for that week one, week two. You had to go through certain things. And then when you were ready for it, it hit you. And I, I get goosebumps all over just thinking about it. Yeah, so thank you for sharing that yeah, it's, piece. No, you're, you're absolutely. It's, it's, it's tough. Um, and it's, it's tough because you, you recognize inside, I think the hardest part is that you have to have a certain amount of uh, internal audit of like, it made me ask myself, like, what, what is, what are your priorities mm. in life, Kevin? Like, you know, coming out of this, you you owe it to this woman to like, stop and ask yourself, like, what do you want the rest of life to be then? Like, stop trying to assume it will be what it was before. And, and maybe you don't even want that. Like take this chance to review what your plan is and do it honorably. And I made the decision in that point that I would, for the rest of my life, as I said, I will, I will live by a code of ethics that to me will make every moment that I'm still alive worth living. And there will come times in my life when it is inconvenient to live by those ethics, but I will continue to do it. And I think it changed my perspective. I, I like to believe that I'm a better person than I was going into this experience because I was so consumed with this idea of success that I don't even think I had a, mm. the ability to measure success, to be honest with you. Um, and I think I was really unaware of the fact that life will provide you clarity sometimes, even when it's in a way that you won't see. I think in this scenario, life provided me with some clarity as to what I'm supposed to be doing while I'm here. So I think that is definitely something we hear from the people we've talked to. Everybody seems to have these moments in which they really are able to clarify like the things that they found useful to let go of the things that they found maybe potentially harmful and really just bring it all a little bit more into focus, even if it's not like a direct, you know, beam of focus, it's right. like just a little bit more like thoughtful, present. The term mindful really gets thrown around now in ways that, you know, it, mindfulness actually is appropriately used when you talk about totally what we're what yeah. we're doing here, which is just being much more present in your life 
rather than sort of being a bystander in your yeah. life, um, you know, and, and recognizing, not in a cliche way, but in, in a very honest and real way, recognizing the privilege of still having your life mm. when a lot of other people don't have theirs. I think that gets to like the two roads, which one of which is to ultimately embrace the gifts and the awakening that cancer can bring, which I'm there. But early on in my journey of people were like, oh, you know, talking about the gifts of cancer, I was like, F that. Like, right. yeah, the, right. yeah. I, 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 I'm not uh, into that. But now I'm like, yeah, like you're talking about, there is there's a change. There's a change that happens when you face mortality head on and then you you meet others who pass away from this disease. Like you have that responsibility. Right. And I think the other path is that path of choosing, you know, at some point you have to choose not to be bitter. And and that's not that like, I still have my pity party moments for sure. But that path, you see people go on that other path where they're bitter for a long time, if not the rest of their lives. And that's just no way to live. Right. And, and that's it exactly is that those of us who have come out on the other side and are healthy and seem to have like the rest of our life in front of us, I, I really do feel like, we have an obligation to those who don't make it out of the fight, like to try to, to do more with the life that we have. And um, the thing about the bitterness and the frustration and the anger and all those emotions is that although they are very natural and, and there's nothing wrong with experiencing them, right. as long as you, as long as you are working towards something better. And I think, I think that's the point is that you're hoping to eventually reach the point when you almost as silly as this sounds, like you almost forgive your circumstances. You like forgive your diagnosis and say, hmm. like, you know, it's like I, I'm I'm not going to let that define me the rest of my life. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna try my best to live a better life. And what I've realized too, through all of this, maybe the silver lining for me at least has been that I recognized from going through this that cancer or heart disease or liver failure or poverty or joblessness or any number of other things that in life constitute like significant and real struggle that when you go through that, they all sort of manifest the same way. And mm -hmm. so people fighting cancer can find commonality in people fighting other fights. Mm. And so that support, that ability to lift people up, um, it extends to a lot more people than just those who are who are fighting a disease. It really goes straight at the heart of anyone who is suffering right now and who feels like they are circumstantially in a place where they wish that they were better than they are and they don't know what to do about it and, and that hopelessness that comes along with that. And so if you can recognize that you have now, if you're in my shoes, mm -hmm. you have been given to a certain degree a little bit of the answer – you have a job to share with these other people and help lift them up, you know? And it was actually the entire catalyst for returning to Top Chef. I, I had always said I wasn't going to do another season of Top right. Chef, and I meant it. I went back to do All-Stars for selfish reasons, which was I wanted the biggest platform possible to tell this story because I wanted thousands and thousands of people who I have never met in my life to hear me tell them it's going to be okay. <laughs> like, you just, and if you need help, I know you think I'm some celebrity, send me a message and I'll reply to it personally. Like I, I will be there to lift you up. And, and I did it for that reason and that reason alone. And then that, in my mind, for that, it was a success. Oh, absolutely. Well done, man. I mean, that's, that's beautiful. And it's interesting that your, that your public profile, like you said, people started reaching out to you. There's almost like, if, even if you wanted to put yourself in a hole, there was nowhere to go. Like people were going to find you. Um, <laughs> right. And so you're, because of your public profile, you had that outreach. I'm also wondering about the response within the culinary community. I mean, certainly you're close to a lot of people around the country and the world in that community. Right. What was that right. like for you? A and what kind of outreach did you see from them? Yeah, your Wikipedia page says you are Wolfgang Puck's favorite Top Chef. Alone. Oh, I didn't, yeah. I didn't know right. that. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I like to point out to people that anybody can write a Wikipedia yeah, yeah. article. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know whether or not that's true or not. We're going to yeah, fact we'll, check we'll that. We'll fact check that by going to another Wikipedia page. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll fire off a quick text uh, to Wolfgang and yeah, see right. if he stands by that statement. <laughs> no, you know, it's uh, so the chef community was tremendous in a way like beyond what I ever expected. So generally speaking, when you're a chef and you see an article written about yourself, you expect that it in the comments will come 
some significant portion of people who just think you're the stupidest, biggest waste of space <laughs> in the entire world. And your life's work that you've poured all of your energy into is just complete and total garbage. Like that is, um, that's kind of what goes along with food writing these days is it tends to be very divisive. Ooh, that's um, awful. So I saw this article and I'm like, oh, here we go. Like, I can't wait for all these people to be like, he's feigning it or like good riddance or whatever. And that was not at all the case. Like, I mean, there was something like 5,500 comments on this Instagram post that I made. And every single one of them was positive. Um, And every single person inside the culinary community that I came into contact with wanted to know if there was anything they could do. I mean, everything down to offering to, like, do you need me to send some of my crew to Atlanta to help your restaurants while you're out? Like, I mean, I have people, chefs from other cities in the U.S. offering to, like help man my restaurants, which we didn't need. I was, you know, I hated to tell them like, you know, I don't do that much work anymore. Like I just mostly walk around and point at things. Like, so me not being there, like they're still going to be just fine. Um, But it was, it it was pretty crazy. And then, I mean, ever since then, when I see these folks and maybe I haven't seen them since and I come into contact with them, the first thing they always ask about is like, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Is everything okay? So people were genuinely concerned in a way that I didn't expect. I didn't think that many people cared, which is bad to say, but I just didn't. I just didn't think that it would make the radar of the things in people's lives that were important at the time, you know? I need to ask you about, so food is a major trigger in what I call cancer land, which is the social media web of people with cancer, right? So when people get a cancer diagnosis, some make radical changes to their diets. Others make no changes at all. And then everyone else is on the spectrum somewhere in between. I I probably think of myself as somewhere in between. Like every doctor or every conference that I've ever been to has said, basically the common sense food advice that they tell anybody else. Yeah, have a sweet in moderation. Have a drink in moderation. Eat red meat in moderation. Uh, It's just like anything anybody should be doing, really. Eat eat the rainbow, cruciferous vegetables. Okay, great. So I'm on board for that. But I'm interested as a chef, if you've made any changes in the way you cook or the way you eat post-cancer? Well, so it's kind of like a double-sided answer because the first answer I would say is like, hell no, no, I just eat like what I want to eat. And so (laughs) I haven't made any changes. But that's not true. I think that the answer is that I value my own wellness. It's a priority for the first time in a long time. Nice. Like pre-cancer, I was burning the candle at both ends, like running this machine. If we're going back to our Italian sports car analogy, (laughs) I was not concerning myself with putting premium fuel in it. Like we were going with whatever was available, (laughs) um, a thimble full of kerosene, whatever it may be. (laughs) And we were like running this thing at max RPMs at all times. Now, coming out of this, I am much more concerned with seeing if we can keep this machine on the road for a while. (laughs) So I try to be much, much more mindful. For me, my diet, actually wasn't really the problem because I, despite what my Instagram feed may look like, I actually eat a pretty healthy diet in general. (laughs) But that's just like out of preference. I have always been a person who my body functions much better on like pretty substantial amounts of protein and vegetables and not a lot of grains and carbohydrates and stuff. And so I just don't really eat those things and hadn't really been eating that way in years. My problem was I did not prioritize exercise in any way whatsoever um, and I didn't give myself like time, my li- like my body time to like recover and rest and like have space. Right. And like I tackled my mental health. Like, so I think holistically speaking, I am much healthier now and have done a lot of things, but I didn't think that some sort of magic solution to it was simply to change my diet. Right. Because, because I've, what I have found, because I have done a lot of talking on this subject for cancer organizations is that sustainability is more important than anything. And anyone can do some sort of crazy bonkers post-cancer diet for a little totally. while, but it doesn't work and it doesn't, and it's not a real it's solution. Like the solution. Yeah, it's no, it's life, not. Yeah. A solution is to, you have to individualize it. You have to go to that person and say, what do you like to eat? And they go like, <sighs> I only like meat and potatoes. And you go, okay, cool. Well, I know that I'm not going to convince you to become a vegetarian let's address this meat and potatoes thing and figure out how we can work around that and still get you healthy. Like that's going to work a lot better. And so individualized nutrition, as I've said over and over and over again, and this kind of goes against some of the sort of larger 
information out there is that there isn't one diet that works right. for everyone post-cancer. You really have to go person by person and recognize what works for them and also what they can stick with, what realistically they can stick with. Because I've spent a lot of time in recovery wards with people who don't have the money to eat all their groceries from a local farmer's market. And so we have to figure out ways on their extremely minimal income to feed them healthy food. And I feel like one of the huge problems out there is that there are, I'm totally on the same page with you, by the way, that there are millions and millions of out there in the media. If you go to any bookstore or online, you see so much material in your face about what to eat to prevent cancer, to fix cancer, to like, there's so many people making money telling us what to do with our diets and nutrition that I think that it's unconscionable. It just makes me bristle every time because right. then it makes a patient like me stress out. And I feel like the people who try to make these radical, radical changes, again, if I'm not telling anyone what to do. I, certainly you do, you do you. But the people that I see do that tend to have more stress. The stress that they're causing themselves about what yep. to pick for food is probably worse off for them than the actual food itself. For sure. It's habit changing. It's not just telling somebody you need to do this for your health. It's Everybody has formed habits around and how many times do you eat in a day? Hopefully you eat at least three or whatever you and that's a habit you have formed since you were a small <laughs> child. So you're asking somebody to take, you know, and habit forming takes an incremental moments. You can't say this is one habit and then the next day you've got a completely new formed habit. It's just not right. how our brains work. <laughs> and and we're also discounting one of the most important facets of food here, which is food's capacity to bring joy. Mm. Yeah, and totally. medicine has shown over and over again that your mental approach to things can have a lot to do with your outcome. And so sure. like you said, increased cortisol levels and being so stressed by the fact that you can't do this diet that the doctor says is a must for you. Even if you were getting all the food, but you were living like this, the agony of trying to make it work. I don't think you'd be in a better spot than somebody who just took it a little bit easier on themselves and like understood oh, that, man, right? that we still need to have those opportunities in life to eat an ice cream cone for no reason <laughs> other than because they're awesome and yeah. they make you feel awesome like yeah. for a moment at least. And then for me, at least then I'm instantly like, Oh, I think there's milk in this ice cream. <laughs> um, but, but you know, like yeah. those moments of just pure joy are medicine unto themselves. Like, and so you can't discount those. So speaking of that joy, as an aside, we have about 700 men in our Man Up to Cancer private Facebook group for men impacted by cancer. And guys will post photos of what they're grilling or what they have on the slow cooker yeah. or, or ribs or something like that. And those are like the most commented, most liked posts <laughs> on the page. So guys will be very excited that I'm having Kevin Gillespie on the podcast for sure. And that he has a book all about pork. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, like, of course they do. Like, who doesn't like that? I mean, I, I, I have some pretty like wild, completely unsubstantiated theories on why those are things that we like. But um, <laughs> at the end of the day, I think it comes down to the fact that, you know, especially if you've gone through a fight, like if you've had to struggle, right. like it's the senses of like pre-cancer normalcy that sometimes can just be so important, you know, and they, they just go by the wayside for most people. Like most people can't recognize the fact that, you know, for months and months and months, you don't have the energy mm. to like go outside, get the grill going, like <laughs> pour the charcoal in, like, and you just want nothing more than to like have that moment that you can remember of the thousands of times that you stood out there, you know, with a beer, like cooking yeah. some burgers and just been, and just didn't care. Like, you just wish like, oh, you think to yourself, if I could just do that again, like I would, I wouldn't let that moment slide by. And so I think that when you see these snapshots of those moments, it, it signals a couple things that there's, it obviously pulls on your own memories. And then it just reminds you that, that those pieces are the ones that just, it's, people don't understand. They think that what you will miss most when you get sick are these big, grand events mm. in life. And it's not true. You miss the freedom of being able to be careless. Like, you don't have that luxury anymore. You, Every moment of your life is one that you need to pay attention to from now on because you might be counting them 
you know? Yeah, absolutely spot on. And that sense of normalcy, like just guys being guys is that's the vibe that we have going on in our group. And and I think because we all have all fate, we, because we all have cancer in common, then it's almost like we're going into cheers and just like, Oh, okay. Like you, right. you, you guys all get it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like my, my father-in-law has his like a uh, military reunion group, you know? And it's like half these guys haven't, <laughs> Like they haven't been friends since they were like 18, 19 years old fighting in Vietnam, but they have that common thing that like will always keep them together. You know, it's that fraternity of having been through this that, and it means a lot. And I think that it's why groups like that are important because the surface might be, look at us sharing like our favorite, you know, way of preparing a steak. But the deep mission is, the building of trust and rapport so that when somebody needs to have a serious conversation, they have somewhere to turn, you know? Exactly. Man. I mean, that's exactly what, yeah, that's it. That's it. You just summed up in a sentence what takes me usually an hour to describe. So thanks, Kevin. You just Um, gave uh, the the tagline to our next. (laughs) Right. I'm going to bet going back through this episode and pulling all of these things out. Um, You've been super (laughs) generous with your time. So we're, and I don't want to keep you over, but so if you're ready, Kellen and I are ready to bring you into the gauntlet of random questions. Oh, yes. I love this kind of stuff. All right. So <laughs> so this is, you know, because cancer can get heavy. COVID can get heavy. We need a little lightness. I'm going to give you some. Yes. I'm going to give you some totally, you know, wacky questions and see where we head with this. Okay. I love it. Yes. I'm excited. The trick is here not to think. So Kevin Gillespie, okay. what's the best type of cheese? <sighs> Man, I, you're not supposed to think. No, nope. right. Um, you have to pick one. American cheese. Yes, yes, I love yes. American. All right, winner. <laughs> um, if you had to wear one Halloween costume every day for the rest of your life, what would you be? I would be um, Peter from Ghostbusters. Oh, nice, Vankman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If Kevin Gillespie was arrested, what would your friends and family assume you had done? Well, I'd like to revisit that question <laughs> later. Uh oh, are we, t- are we touching on something know. way I, too personal? It's it's a whole other. I think they would think that I had lost my temper and like probably punched the cop. Okay, punch so, me. Like, all right, good. Assaulting a police officer, I love yeah. it. Yeah, um, assaulting a police officer is the is the most likely. According to the Georgia Restaurant Association, mm. roughly how many restaurants are in the Metro Atlanta area? Oh God, I bet I don't twenty thousand. Oh, you're pretty. That's pretty close, actually. Twelve. They say around twelve thousand. But and I don't know how COVID has affected all this, but that's what they say on their site. Yeah, there's 12. like eleven right now. And how many? So, how many do you have? Uh, we actually have all. We have three open. Three of the five that we have open. Okay. So we're pretty lucky compared to most folks. So this is one of my favorites for the zombie apocalypse. You can only pick one weapon to defend yourself and your family. What are you going to use? Weirdly enough, I've already thought about this one quite a lot. Um, so, of course, you have Ruger twenty-two long rifle, high capacity magazine, low recoil, very easy for headshots. So, don't mess with let Kevin guess, Gillespie. Let me guess, you like The Walking Dead? You've watched The Walking Dead. <laughs> so, Norman Reedus, who plays Daryl, yeah, 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 Walking yeah. Dead, um, was my next door neighbor for a super long time. Uh, okay. So, um, <laughs> oddly enough, and I had never seen the show and was like, "You're on TV, You're- huh?" Like, so, yeah, I'm. You're killing a I'm lot bad. of zombies. I'm, yeah, that's awesome. And and I feel like if the zombie apocalypse happened, I just imagine it happening in Georgia for some reason. Like, well, that's because that, where it's walk the walking is that dead the, is filmed. Is the walking, yeah. I, yeah. I never yeah. got we, into that. We got it primed up down yeah, here. Yeah, it's just basically <laughs> they created the whole like uh, film industry down there. Yeah. Oh, okay. If you could pick one other celebrity chef to prepare a meal for you, who would it be? Thomas Keller. Sorry, yeah, Voltaggio. Vol- sure. The Voltaggio brothers are going to be calling into the show, I'm pretty sure. I do. I, you know, I love the Voltaggio brothers, but I've had them cook <laughs> plenty of food. Like. <laughs> and this is a really critical question. This is probably, okay. oh, this is no, really just... personal for me. So I hope you get it okay. correct. But there's nobody one... has been on your side yet for this hey, question. No, 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 zip it. No, this is the one. Okay. Pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Uh, do I? So my answer is... Sure, it could work. So, so everybody, <laughs> everything was going so well today with Kevin. So Gillespie. I like, <laughs> I, I'm a pineapple on pizza. I totally like it. Yeah. There's a really good pizzeria up here that does uh, a pineapple, a uh, hot honey, and uh, bacon. It's mm. really good. <laughs> I so I'm getting so, the sense that I'm losing this battle. Kevin, explain yeah. this. So to me. I I don't 
I'm not normally in the, I would never, I can't think of a single time I've ordered pineapple on my pizza. There you go. But, but with the caveat (laughs) of, I have had some weird stuff on pizza and it's been surprisingly good. I remember one time I was in a train station in Austria and I had corn and potatoes on my pizza and I was like, Hmm. what? And it was spectacular. And so in my mind, in the hands of a person who knew what they were doing, you could probably make pineapple on a pizza be pretty good. I, yeah. I've not personally had it that's been good, but He's, it could He has happen. not had a single person on his side about this, so no. you're, you're in a good in company. The fa- <laughs> no, in the Facebook group, I have plenty of defenders, but I'm just going to concede for today. Like, I'm dealing with Chef Kevin here. Like, yeah, come he on. Yeah, can make like, the pizza. <laughs> well, <laughs> again, if you in the very first chapter of Fire in My Belly, I say there is no such thing as like a bad ingredient. It's the manner of preparation. And so I think the pineapple on pizza gets botched a lot because pineapple and tomato sauce do not make any sense. But if you like ditch that part and start from the ground up, it should be able to Maybe be pretty Maybe it's good. just my yeah, fierce love of tomato sauce. You should sauce. try the hot honey one, man. All right, I tomatoes. will. I bet, now that sounds very yeah. good. So, that sounds like that could be delicious. So Kevin Gillespie, I cannot thank you enough for coming on and doing this. If you have any cancer-related programs, things that you want to shout out in the future, news, if you just want to come on and hang with us, please reach out because we would love to have you back on again. Awesome. This has been such a fantastic show. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. And it's, it's, I think it's great to have an opportunity to have a place where people can talk about these things. So awesome. you guys are doing good work. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. If you want to get behind our mission, you can connect with us, subscribe to our email list, and check out our other content at manuptocancer.com. And if you know a man struggling with the isolation that cancer can bring, let him know about us. The Wolfpack doors are always open.